0: Yeah, right. <laughs> I guess we need some guidance on how to interpret oh, it. Oh, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> That's not a problem. Okay, good.
1: This is the Convergent Science Network podcast.
0: But you would be interested in doing that.
1: Yeah? Leading okay, researchers I'm a, I'm a, I'm in the domain right, of okay. neuroscience, okay. brain theory, okay. and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott.
0: It's Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network uh, podcast, and I'm here with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott um, in the BCBT um, workshop of 2014, and we were with our speaker um, Henry Kennedy, who has been um, talking about the architecture of, in particular, the neocortex. And Henry, you you sort of you came in not sort of opening the door, you sort of knocked down the door by just saying, look, all the stuff you guys Uh, know and love is wrong like small world networks you should take with a big grain of salt Um, standard ideas about how we think about the connectivity of of the human neocortex are maybe incorrect right so what but what's your position exactly towards these standard views Uh,
2: not that the small world network is wrong it it, it's not it's simply um, a, a proposition based on inadequate data so uh, if you if you look at the complete data of interaerial networks, it just so happens that they're very high density, and at that kind of density the small world model is not is not um, appropriate it doesn 't tell you anything about it so mm-hmm. uh, actually what we 're trying to say is that what does give you a much more um, meaningful explanation about how the how what the architecture corresponds to is if you take into consideration the the distance and the weight of the strength of connections and this breaks away completely from the small world tradition because you're no longer dealing with a binary network you're dealing with a directed weighted network. Mm-hmm. That was the point we were trying to
0: make. Right. So you're saying it's just too crude a view to really help you understand how how a cortex is wired up.
2: It's ignoring too much too much about what actually specifies the network. If you have a, a network which is has a density of 70%, it's not what is connected to what that will tell you very much, it's how strongly which area is connected to which area. It's the strength of the connections, and it's, the, it's a wide range of strengths that makes the, the cortical network so, so very, very uh, surprising in some ways. There's a big range of, of strengths of connections. They follow... They cross over five orders of magnitude, and it's taking those strengths into consideration that you'll have an insight into um, what is actually the, the fingerprint, the connectivity profile of a mm-hmm. particular
0: area. Right. So now you've been spending a lot of time doing very detailed studies uh, using tracer injections in understanding the connectivity, in particular, of the, of the cat neocortex, and I guess with emphasis on, on the visual areas.
2: Uh, I started off in cat yeah. visual cortex many many years ago. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, more years than I care to remember. Twenty years maybe since mm-hmm. I have
0: touched a cat. Yeah, right. Um, but so so. But just to make the point that that you're not basing your your conclusions on let's say a functional description of the system, or in terms of what you might want to call a functional connectivity, you base it. You base it really on a, a detailed study of, let's say. Um, Injected cells, right? So it's a very direct measure of connectivity. Yes. Okay. Are these? So then, given given that data set, how do you think of what, what is it? What is the, the the template you have in mind of cortical connectivity? How is it different from what a small world would tell you? What how, how is it really wired up? What are the wiring rules?
2: Well, there is a ri- wiring rule, and that 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 we felt was. Um that was the uh, the backbone of the of the publications we've been making recently there there are there is a very simple very straightforward wiring rule and that is that there's a, a minimization of wire uh, in and we're certainly not the first people to find it but what I think we have been able to put our finger on is a principle which explains that wire minimization which is which is uh, such a strong constraining feature of the cortex so the the constraint Basically, that we've been able to to demonstrate is that there's a weight-distance relationship, so there's an exponential fall of of strength of connections with distance, and if you take that um, on board and you and you generate uh, random networks based on those uh, on that particular feature using the space constants, the lambda value that we've observed. Uh, you generate networks which, uh, r- in many ways, reflect the properties of the cortical network that you can look at down the microscope that you can actually to measure. Just to clarify, we're talking mm-hmm. about a primate, yes, not, not cat, mm-hmm. yes. yeah. yeah, yeah, non-human primate.
0: But then, isn't this contradictory what you said earlier about weights? Because in some, sense, so the, the, the data is roughly, roughly telling you that over a distance of let's say sixty, seventy millimeters. You would have an exponent a roughly exponential kind of decay of the probability to connect and of the connection strength. Yes. Yeah. But earlier you said the, the the small world view doesn't help you because you have maybe low probability connections, but their strength matters. Their strength actually can tip the balance, if you want, into a, a significant functional relation or not. But now your data shows that the weight also drops off with distance. Mm-hmm. So would that then not undercut your earlier argument against the small world network? Well, the 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 point about the criticism
2: about the small world network is simply if you take the density, that is to say, the the, the number of connections that you have between different cortical areas. It turns out to be about 70%. So 70% of the connections that can exist actually do exist. That's a very, very high density. And at that density, you have a small world. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to measure the clustering index, or the path length, or what have you. It is, everything is virtually connected to everything else. Every area is one and a half hops away. Now, what you're referring to now, the, the fact is that when you look over very long distance, Yes, very few areas are connected, and that's interesting because it means that you have a sort of binary specificity over those mm-hmm. distances. The presence of a connection in itself is going to be uh, significant in terms of trying to understand the uh, the biology. Our point is that, that globally, overall, it's going to be the strength of connections which matter. But there are exceptions over these long distances. So, for example, if you take... Um, uh, the frontal eye field projection to area V4, that connection is actually rather strong. It's stronger than what you would predict, so it's an, it's an outlier, and I think that, that that's uh, something which comes out of uh, our investigations, which I think need
1: to be considered in more detail. You're, you're really doing the analysis two spatial scales here, so you're talking about connectivity between cortical areas Yes. of what? which, how many are we talking there, sort of?
2: Well, we're working with an atlas of 91 areas in the in the macaque monkey. Right,
1: and so and then at another spatial scale, you're talking about connectivity within an area, which you're saying is 80 to 90 percent of the connections are within cortical areas. Yes. Yeah. But and then spilling out into surrounding areas with the remaining 10 to 20 percent of connections. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I think when you're analysing the data, are you analysing it in different ways when you're doing these two analyses or is
2: we haven't uh, the the connectivity within the cortical area this is a local connectivity if you will um so if you take a point in a cortical area uh 80 of the projections to that point come from within two millimeters actually right that's the local connectivity and we're not doing we're not looking at that in any great detail uh actually it should be looked at because there's been very little work on that so you have the canonical model which is developed by kevin martin and rodney douglas that was for area b1 of the cat it's never been done for other cortical areas we don't know what that looks like we're not we're not doing that
1: so when you say most of the connections are are within an area they're actually within a very small part of that area
2: absolutely yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: well
1: i think that the the range you
0: were talking about in a day to your person of a day was, in, like I said earlier, up to eighty millimeters or something, right? Not not beyond that.
2: Well, well for the, the
0: scaling laws that you showed,
2: yeah, for the macaque monkey, it's about seven seven centimeters is about the size of the brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course. Mm-hmm. But that so what is then the? So if we now look at at at, at these rules of of connectivity that you that you presented. That seems to suggest that, indeed, like you said earlier, everything's connected to everything, um, directly or indirectly. So that would seem a little bit unspecific to talk about, let's say, an architecture that actually has a certain function. And also, when you look at the physiological properties of it, it doesn't necessarily look as a, some sort of uniform structure. It just seems much more fractionated in its, in its dynamics. So, so how do you match these two? So is there an an, an element of fractionation and and specialization that we just have not seen in this data?
1: Well, I think you were describing it though, weren't you, with the dorsal and ventral stream. There was some fractionation. Well no, this is
0: what I wanna what I want to get to, right? So 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 how do we get because uh, just at the face at face value of this Markov kind of data, the scaling laws, you could say, Okay, well, this looks pretty uniform wherever I go, it's sort of connected in a similar way, similar kinds of weight distributions, similar kind of length distributions. But how does it give you functional specialisation of areas and functionally organised forms of dynamics? That that's the question. Then.
2: Okay. So the short answer to that is the uh, the binary specificity is very is low, as you pointed out. Uh, everything is not connected to everything, but there is uh, uh, at least within. Within uh, say fifteen centimeters, fifteen millimeters of an area, there there is a very very high connectivity. So you you are virtually approaching eighty percent, maybe ninety percent. So it's going to be the strength of connections which are which are important. So we've looked at the global properties of these networks. So you can you can make an efficiency measure, which is a sort of conductance where you're treating the um, the strength of connection as an inverse resistance, and when you do that. You look at the local efficiency and global efficiency, and then you can you can look how the global efficiency, the local efficiency, uh, is affected by thresholding, removing the, the weakest connections until you have just the backbone of strong, very strong connections. Mm-hmm. And then look how your um, efficiency changes with removal of connections, and show that the... Um, the networks which you 've produced using the exponential distance rule actually very very faithfully mimics the um, efficiency changes that you can observe as you remove connections so um, the point I want to make is that these uh, these these distance rule this distance rule the exponential distance rule actually gives you a handle on looking at global properties, not just mm-hmm. the um, not just the motives and the, and the click, which I was mm-hmm. talking about earlier yeah. on. And the click actually is, we're coming back to the core of the previous speaker. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's not without its own significance. But there is, um, the strength of connection does give you uh, a very, very strong uh, degree mm-hmm. of specificity. But again, it, it requires looking at the strength of connections. And I think one of the reasons why this uh, has been perhaps ignored in the literature is, first of all, Um, you can't see this kind of range of strength of connections with diffusion MRI. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can see it with track tracing. If you're going to do this with track tracing, then you've got to count neurons or synapses, and that's a lot of work. So if you want to have that kind of data, then you you can't just uh, do what a a lot of us have been doing for many, many years, myself included, which is saying strong, weak, and medium. Mm -hmm. Strong, weak, and medium isn't going to tell you about the range of strengths of connections, where the specificity is coming in, mm-hmm. it requires uh, a, a much much uh, more thorough approach than that and, and what that shows you is y- you have these five orders of magnitude that means that the the counts that you 're making run into very very high numbers mm-hmm. and that that 's an important point
0: but but the other thing that I would like to understand better than is so if I take now these scaling. Laws that we have for weights and for the probability to connect, right? These are probabilistic; they're probability distributions. So I just take a lattice of of units, and I'm gonna wire them up following these two probability distributions of lateral connectivity and the strength of these connections, right? Then you would expect if I start to sort of chip away those guys and and I remove the the, the weights with the with the with the smallest, the lowest uh, value, lowest strength, that I would get also the random patterns. Because the, these two scaling laws or wiring laws themselves don't give me any kind of symmetry breaking, right? So if I do this a million times, I would have a million different kinds of uh, topologies, or not?
2: No, you don't. What okay. you f- what you find in when you when you when you rem- when you take the data, the inter connectivity database that we have, which is twenty nine areas and some hundreds of of connections, and you remove the weakest connections, you get. Um, a, a backbone. You mm-hmm. find the backbone of the, of the cortex and that gives you uh, those features and characteristics of that backbone. When you do the same thing to your random networks that you generated using the exponential distance uh, ch- rule that we have. What we're saying that is that is a probability. So you pick uh, more frequently the very mm-hmm. strong short distance connections, what have you. When you when you when you remove the weak connections and you you end up eventually with your with your backbone, you find that it has many of the features of the backbone in the data that you've observed. Which
0: features do you recover best?
2: Well, uh, I, I mentioned the motives. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. The, the mm-hmm. correspondence between the motives is actually excellent. Mm-hmm so you have 16 different motifs of, uh, of free free mm-hmm. nodes uh, of those 16 different motifs uh, your distribution uh, which is captured by the exponential distance rule is is actually excellent mm-hmm. then we uh, i referred to this uh, this question of hubs now mm-hmm. the people have been uh, finding hubs as to say areas with high degree distribution to them a large number of connections with other cortical areas um and the, the idea of the, of the cortical core is that the hubs form more connections between themselves mm-hmm. than you would predict uh, statistically. So that's actually uh, what is referred to as a rich club. The rich club analysis was introduced in, in network science uh, by Coriza and other people about seven or eight years ago. Now, you, you can't do that kind of analysis on a high-density network. It, it, the normalization doesn't work. So what we've done is look at the clicks. Mm -hmm. So the clicks are sets of areas which are 100% connected amongst Mm -hmm. themselves. And we find a very, very large number of clicks. And when you look at the probability of finding that by chance, it's extremely low. When we do the same analysis of um, networks which we've constructed using this EDR, we find the same number of clicks. Mm -hmm with a very, very similar frequency, and uh, the correspondence is really, truly, mm-hmm. very remarkable.
0: So, and you, you're not imposing any other
1: constraints, you just follow the, uh, this exponential
0: distance rule and that's it? Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay.
1: So, th- some, some fairly simple geometric rules are giving us a lot of information about connectivity within the brain. Mm. Uh, do you then draw inferences about the developmental processes that are building brains? And because this has been a a week where we've looked at evolution and development uh, and their impact on the way the adult brain is. And and your data, I I guess, gives hope to people that want there to be some uh, useful developmental rules that we can apply, uh, perhaps, to build a brain on which experience then has some impact.
2: Right. I I think that's... um that's a very important issue which we haven't looked at, despite the fact that I'm also I have another side to myself which is um, to do with cortical development. So I, I mentioned in my in my presentation that there's this log normal distribution of weights. Um, the, a number of studies have looked at the distribution of synaptic weights at the single cell level and also find a log normal distribution. And there's a recent um, paper. Um, review in nature and neuroscience looking at log normal distributions in frequencies of firing and other sort of phenomena and it seems to be a sort of signature you're finding a a, a lot now the log normal distribution in itself suggests that there could be a very simple algorithm which would be controlling outgrowth of of axons now um for many years, I was interested in, in uh, the formation of connections, and that was in, in cat and monkey cortex and in those days, the uh, predominant um, theme in, in cortical development was this notion of exuberance that you had an overproduction of connections, and that the, uh, the selective pattern, the precise pattern that which is characteristic of the adult, emerges through a pruning process. Um, and that this pruning process is actually necessary because there's not enough information in the genome to set up the correct connectivity uh, we 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 challenged that and every time we challenged it it turned out not to be the case
0: so what did you find
2: well in the case of inter hemispheric connections so that was the model which was which was hugely used between 1970 and, and 1985 uh, by Giorgio Innocenti, uh, Doug Frost, and, and, and many many people were looking at Herb Kalaki. Um, there you could f- you could observe a, a widespread connectivity in the in the very young animal, which would decrease as the animal would mature. So we challenged that by looking at the um, colosal connectivity of the prenatal monkey uh, in the visual system and the. Uh, the characteristic of the monkey is that the area v1 is a in the adult so then you can really ask the question is is it a during development because it shouldn't be if if this exuberancy rule is going to be general and it's not mm-hmm. we were able to show that there's never a colosal connection going into area v1 of the monkey so i think it's very much a problem you've got to be able to distinguish with the the growth of the brain and the and expansion and and the um increasing uh, and therefore the decreasing density simply because of the expansion, you've got to to be able to sort that out from the actual creation of the specificity. So that was in uh, inter-hemispheric connections. But we then did the same thing looking at the uh, connections between V2 and V4, which are in... uh, You have these bands where you have projections to V4 and projections to MT. And we were able to show that they're correctly aligned from the word go there's Mm -hmm. no there's an overall decrease in density but it's not the decrease in density that creates the pattern Mm -hmm.
0: but then this this old-fashioned idea we can call it now of exuberance and pruning would still hold but for a smaller set of of let's say neurons and connections or you think it's really the wrong way to think about how the system gets wired up I think it might be an oversimplification. I think the idea that you don't have enough genes to
2: specify connections is is not really very interesting. I think the question the confusion which was made was not is there a decrease in density of connections with with growth there is. The the question which was was um which was um, posed was is it that decrease in connections which creates the specific mm-hmm. pattern? And that, I think, has never really been satisfactorily shown to be the case. I think it's not. I'm not saying it plays absolutely no role at all, but I think there's much more. Um, there's much more uh, guided growth and mm-hmm. target uh, specification.
0: But couldn't you argue that if you apply the exponential distance rule to a developing brain, you should see something that might look like pruning by definition, because you're imposing a distance relationship of your connectivity in an expanding Volume.
2: Well, I think that would yeah, I think that would be an interesting thing to look at. Um, simply look at the um, at the brain and see if you, how, how does this exponential distance mm-hmm. rule look in a very immature animal. The, the problem is that numbers get very big, and you really need much more automated uh, mm-hmm. techniques in counting, but which are coming through actually. Right. So I think that sort of thing is something that um, that will be that will be addressable.
0: Mm-hmm
1: one of the um, other things that you discussed today was how uh, the primate brain seems to minimize the wiring length mm-hmm. uh, as a consequence of a- applying these rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and b- bearing in mind this point about changing is brain size, we also, you al- we also discussed some data about animals with smaller brains like mice and that the same rules don't necessarily apply. So uh, are there some scaling issues here? Brains that that perhaps would help us un- unravel some of these issues.
2: Ab- absolutely, yes. This is something we are very interested in looking at. We've we've um, with Zoltan Tarakai and his, his his postdoc, who's now back in Romania. We we have a we have funding with with John Cass to look exactly at that. So we were we're looking at the mouse and the microcebus, which is a small primate, and we want to look at the baboon, which is about as big as we can go in primates. That's not a, a huge deal, and and the idea is to see how this um, exponential distance rule plays out in in changes in brain size. Um, so we we were still working with our own database, which we're, we're putting together with uh, Andreas Burkhalter, but um, to keep us sort of going on this, we've been looking at the Allen Brain Institute database, and and it's actually really rather interesting. So this is very, very preliminary, and and uh, with Alton Torokay and Ken Coblock and and our colleagues were still analysing this data. But the the glaring thing is in the mouse, there's a huge amount of um, wire economy that you can impose on it. So the the areas in the brain are not localized optimally as they are in the primate, and and that makes it look straight away very strange because you have. Areas which are not connected, which are actually quite near to another area, and they're not connected to it, and that's what you you absolutely don't see in in, in the monkey. Mm-hmm. And um, the the thing that uh, we're very interested with Torikai and and uh, uh, the, the, the the group in general is to see how folding comes into this. So the comparison between mouse and monkey is a bit complicated because we have a change in brain size, but we also have a change in unfolding. So what we've been doing is uh, with David Van Essen is we've been instead of taking the uh, distances which we've been using up until now, which have been white matter distances between areas uh, approximating the trajectory of the, of the axon, we've been taking surface distances. And when you do that, you're sort of unfolding the brain as it were. Right. And, and when you do that, you get a very, very different uh, distribution of distances in the monkey. So this is unfolding the monkey brain.
1: This is flattening the cortical sheet mm-hmm. in fact, Virtually, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And then when you look at your distance distribution, you get something much flatter. It's, it's not at all like a Gaussian pointed, a very pointed Gaussian. And it looks just like the mouse. Mm-hmm. It looks just like the mouse. And so we're now playing with that and seeing how, how this distance distribution interacts with this exponential distance rule to set up the specificity that we're seeing. So, what kind of rule would hold in the mouse brain? That's uh, a key question. Certainly, the exponential distance rule is part of it, um, but the jury is out completely. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. Zoltan Tarakai and, and Maria Havaz is uh, doing simulations on that, and and we we don't quite
0: know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you seem to suggest this morning that the probability to find long range connections is higher in the mouse brain than in the macaque brain or did i misunderstand that
2: no that, that that's correct so um when you look in in, in the macaque you have a, a an exponential a lambda value w- with a very sharp drop uh, when you look in the mouse the the decline in in strength with distance is much more shallower mm-hmm. and that's certainly part of uh, um, the exponential distance rule being altogether specifying much less uh, specificity in your mm-hmm. in your mouse. So you we talked about the cortical core in the macaque. You have this very large number of clicks, which is extremely improbable. In the mouse, you have a much smaller number. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, what although the overall number of areas are the same in both species, we're actually making these networks on the same number of areas. We're, we're, we're using the same core comparable number of areas, so um, the cortical core is much less defined. So what I think this is pointing to is um, in a world where one might be tempted to, to say, well, the mouse can be a very interesting model uh, for the brain. It, it might be because you can have knockouts, you can have knock-in, you can, you can use uh, optogenetics very easily and what have you. But simply from, from these kind of large-scale properties it appears to be very, very, very different.
0: Mm-hmm. But in the areas you're looking at, the cell densities are comparable to primate?
2: No, they're not. Uh, okay. So the scaling rules, um, and John Kaus could, could talk about this, he's he's uh, with his colleague uh, Herculano Huzel, they've, mm-hmm. they've done a lot of work on that, and the scaling rules in, in primates and rodents are quite different. Mm-hmm. So so basically, I mean the way i 've understood it in fact, I want to talk to this about John uh, at this meeting is that the um your um, as, as the brain changes in size you basically you you can change the density of cells mm-hmm. in in rodents um, My feeling is that this might lead to a capacity for miniaturization uh, mm-hmm. the microcebus is about a centimeter and something, and it 's the smallest. Primate brain that exists, and as the lady this morning was pointing out, there's an, a huge radiation in primates. And there's a huge adaptation. The mouse, uh, the uh, rodent brain, can go down to tiny little things. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they they have moles and mm-hmm. and uh, voles and what have you that have. Uh, no, but th-
0: this means, Henry, that possibly. The scaling law still holds, but it is modulated by cell density. It right. scales with in, in turn with cell density. Right. So the cells are packed more tightly and that gives you an exponential decay. What if the cells so packed more loosely, you sort of it gets stretched out? Would that right. be reasonable?
2: I think that's I think that's what know Husel's results are saying. I think mm-hmm. she's saying that the the density has a much bigger variation in in rodents so that you can make smaller and smaller brains Mm -hmm. by making smaller and smaller cells. But the other
0: thing about the mouse example that that might be problematic is that for the primate brain, you were saying, look, these laws we have on connectivity tells you something about the optimal wiring of a brain because you see that regions that are connected are placed together and so on, right? And you make this distinction, or the example of the ventral dorsal visual stream. However, now, for the, for the mouse case, you say that you find regions there that are adjacent but not connected.
2: Not adjacent, but nearby,
0: yes. No, but, okay, still, mm-hmm. right? So they're, they're nearby but not connected. So that seems to be a violation of Absolutely. the principle that you identify. So that means a mouse brain in its development is really setting up fixed borders so no, we're not going to wire these guys up. Yes. While you n- apparently are not doing that in the primate brain. Is that correct?
2: Exactly, yes. That, that, that's what... I, I found so very very surprising. I mm. didn't expect that at all. Yeah. And if you if you optimize your your mouse brain uh, so you place the areas optimally so that you don't have these absent connections as it were and then you look at your lambda value it looks much more like a monkey. Mm-hmm. So you can you can convert it into a monkey. Now wh- how we got to that state I don't know but I'm I'm wondering if if there is if the ancestral primate was actually uh, I, I think probably quite large, and so today's rodents might have gone under undergone a miniaturisation. And is that the cost that you're paying for miniaturisation, mm-hmm. or is it another kind of adaptation? That mm-hmm. we're, not,
0: uh, we're not we're not putting our finger on. So about optimality, what what I would like to understand is how you define that. Because if you talk about optimally wiring a brain, what does that really mean? Does it mean like that you have a constant number of wires? crossing certain distances independent of where you are on this cortical sheet? Does it mean that you want to optimally transfer signals between areas, that you want to use as a minimum number of intermediate steps to get from A to B? What What's optimality here?
2: Well, I've been using the term maybe rather loosely. What we're talking about is optimal placement. Can you replace the areas in a monkey brain in such a way that you would be using less wire given the strength values that we observe. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is no, you can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way you can do that. These are simulations that take days and days and days to do, but there's, there's no way of doing that, either to the binary. Or that, that maybe there's one or two areas that you can flip positions, but the weighted, absolutely not. In the mouse, you can get 15% reduction in wire both for the binary and for the, and for the weighted network. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about optimal placements. The, the second part of the, the, your question touched on this thing that I was talking about, that if you, if you take this uh, exponential distance rule to heart and you, you look at um, the visual cortex, for example, and you look at the central visual one and, and peripheral area visual one, you'll notice that they're in very different neighborhoods in terms of the areas which are surrounding them that would suggest that the central area V1 should be more strongly connected with a very different population Mm -hmm. of areas than the peripheral V1, and the same for V2. Mm -hmm. And We've looked at that, and the answer is that yes, the connectivity is very different. So central V1 is is in front of the um, temporal areas, so you find that central V1 and central V2 look like ventral stream areas. And if you look at the peripheral representation there in front of the parietal cortex mm-hmm. and you look at the strength of the connection and you do a summation of strength then these areas or this, these parts of these areas appear to be dorsal stream areas mm-hmm. and quite different so from that i'm wondering if mm-hmm. if what we're, we have an optimization of the position of areas but we also have an optimization of the shape of areas and if you look at the flat maps of David Van Essen and, and, and others, they have very, very distinctive shapes. I mean, you remember the motor cortex yeah. and the somatosensory yeah. cortex, these long, thin strips yeah. of cortex where you put the whole homolocus in this peculiar sort of strip. You could imagine something very different.
0: But would you accept the hypothesis that what you're optimizing is a transduction delay between these areas? Well, that's,
2: yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that was part of the motivation that we had to, to look at the distance through the white matter. So we, we felt that we were looking at the, um, and I think in the first instance, we, so we measured the white matter distances and the, and the surface distance, and, and you could imagine that these distance relationships we've been reporting um, could simply be reflecting um, change of the cortical property in which case the surface distance would be very good. Uh, Or it's something to do with transduction Mm -hmm. signals, in which case your trajectory through the white matter should be very good. And so I was expecting to have a sort of black and white answer comparing those two, and
0: and that didn't happen. What did happen?
2: Well, um, not much, actually. (laughs) We we stuck to the white matter distances because that's what we had started off with. But then, when we were looking, uh, when we were making this monkey mouse comparison, uh, mm-hmm. that's where we asked ourselves the question: What about if we unfold the monkey cortex, and how will that behave? And we're still we're still looking at that. But it certainly changes the distribution of distances.
1: Mm-hmm. But so when, uh, when you say that um, you want to do this uh, minimal wiring test and see if you can rearrange cortical areas uh, to reduce the wiring, how do you deal with the fact that the the pieces of the jigsaw are all very different shapes and there's really only one way it fits together so if you rearrange it how do you compensate for that
2: oh well so what we're rearranging we're not tackling shape here right uh, okay. tony <laughs> no. yeah yeah no, i presume you're not yeah. so. so we're changing the we're, we, we're measuring distances between uh the barycenters of the areas and right. so we're, we're switching barycenters around in space we're not we're not trying to shift these peculiar shapes and make them all fit in it's not a jigsaw puzzle thing mm. so we're, we're moving the we're moving the Barry centers mm. and we're considering the the the, the distance from one barycenter Center to another is the distance between one cortical area
1: and another but as you say the shape of these areas can be quite extreme to long thin strips yeah which then does have an impact
2: that Yeah, that introduces its own problem about what is a barycenter of, a, of an ob, a long, oblong shape, yeah.
0: But that's that's where we are. So then, if you had to choose one objective that these wires are optimizing, it would be just to minimize the physical wires between areas. That would be your bet today. Um, I,
2: as I say, I, I'm, I'm not sure. If you look at, if you look at area V one and V two mm-hmm. in the monkey maca- in the macaque, it's the the two biggest areas uh, in the, in the macaque brain. In fact, they're very very large. If you, relatively speaking, compared to any brain, they're huge. And in the central representation, they're folded in such a way that V one and V two uh, lie opposite each other, separated by one millimeter of white matter. So it's the most extraordinary engineering to make sure that you've really minimized the distance between the two biggest areas of Mm -hmm. the macaque brain. That tends to make one feel either it's because, um, well, you know, if, if, if you had as much white matter in your brain as a mouse, it would be the size of a bathtub, which would make getting out of the door rather awkward. Hmm. so we know that there's a reduction in white matter there's a reduction in total connectivity as brains get bigger um so it it, it could be that that piece of engineering mm-hmm. is dealing with that problem alternatively it's dealing with the transduction problem mm-hmm. and it, you you really need that kind of very very short distance for, for v1 and v2 to do its job
1: oh, right. so in fact that could maybe explain some of these scaling distances is that uh, the amount of wire you have in the brain really becomes uh, uh, under pressure as oh, you get absolutely. bigger brains. And yeah. So you really have to optimize for wire length in a way that in a small brain mm-hmm. is not so important.
0: Absolutely, yes. But now another element of this is that we could argue, well, these you measure this in adult, in adult sub, uh, monkeys, mm-hmm. right? So... Uh, This is a a, a cortex that has been learning and Mm -hmm. changing its properties due to plasticity rules. Mm -hmm. Plasticity rules are activity dependent. So what Mm -hmm. you're looking at is really the history of activity in this system. Mm -hmm. Now, the history of its activity is strongly constrained by subcortical systems. Like Mm -hmm. in the case of cortex, you'll depend on your thalamus. And now, thalamic projections are not random. Thalamic projections actually also define very specific envelopes Mm Of interaction with. Outlets. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I could argue what you're actually measuring is an echo of the combination of the envelope of thalamic projections into this system modulated by the local plasticity rules that make these guys wire up together. Would you, would you accept that interpretation?
2: I'd go a long further, much further than that. Okay. The work we've been doing with Colette de Haye over the last 10 years shows that the thalamic fibers release a, a mitogenic factor. Which governs the proliferation in the germinal zones. So, the size of your areas, the size of the cortex, is very largely determined by the interaction between the thalamic fibers mm-hmm. and these germinal zones. And that whole relationship between the thalamus and, and the cortex setting up, for, m- for many years, people thought that the thalamus was playing an important role in the specification post mitotic. So you had the barrel cortex and the the effect of plucking whiskers and 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 seeing the the representation of the barrels changing in some fashion on in, on the cortical surface. So what we've been arguing for for a long time now is that the the fibers are actually their primary target, and particularly in primates, it's it's much more accentuated. Is not the cortical plate; it's the germinal zone, mm-hmm. and and. Um, so the thalamic fibers get into the cortex in the primate very, very early, before there is any cortical plate. In fact, before there is any release of mitototic neurons into the cortex. And what they're doing is actually, I think, um, hugely to do with shaping the, uh, mm-hmm. the uh, proliferation
0: and right. possibly but the specification. Would it also mean that the w- if we look at these two types of thalamic projections, like powerful right, where the, the powerful is uh, seems to be not very plastic and the magnocellular is shouldn't there then be a correlation between powerful cellular projections and your scaling law
2: um, well f- for me the scaling law is is uh, a little different from that it's uh, it's to do with how you how white matter gray matter changes over a range of brain sizes mm-hmm. and so what people have been able to show is as brains get bigger the volume of white matter doesn't increase at the same rate as the volume of gray matter. And so this is where this, this this notion that was introduced by Ringo some 20 years ago, that as brains get bigger, there's a huge pressure to economize numbers of connections, which, if you think about it, is really rather extraordinary, mm-hmm. because brains are all to do with connections, and, and you've got to actually reduce the number of connections and reduce the number of long-distance connections. So... Um, So uh, that to me is... uh, But the
0: question is, how do you do that, right? How do you control mm. the developmental program to achieve this, uh, that you economize on these connections? So then Mm -hmm. the question is, is the Thalamus then the key to understand the genesis of your scaling law?
2: Well, I I don't know. I think if I understand Huckelone's work, Huckelone Huzel's work correctly... um, as your um, as your rodent brains get bigger, the 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 size of the neurons get larger. So you you have this change in density, which mm-hmm. you don't have in primates. So that seems to me to be a very different sort of um, uh, algorithm for building the brain. If you say, well, okay, we're going to have primates, and primates are going to have basically a small variation of cell size. And uh, we want to go from a small brain to a big brain, mm-hmm. so we 're going to economize on connections and then you do the same thing for rodents. you say well we 're going to have to do the same economy on connections we did that 's a that 's a kind of given but here we can change the brain size the neuron size a bit more um so you, you seem to run into a yeah. bit of a problem with creating very yeah. big brains. You have caraaba, you have these uh, south American Capybara. capybaras. you have these big uh, South American rodents. But then I'm wondering if the adaptation is much more adapted to making small brains. So th- that is the sort of rules mm-hmm. I see for the scaling. I, I, I haven't been thinking about um, how the. No, because, because what came.
0: I'm after, what I try to figure out is uh, now what we're trying to do this week in the school is this relationship between genetics and development, mm-hmm. right? And as we discussed earlier, what you measure with the scaling law is like an echo of these two processes working together. Right. Right. So, so then I was trying to push you a bit on trying to un- come to some understanding. Okay, what are the causal factors right. that give rise to these scaling laws that you measured? Right. right? Okay,
2: well, we're, we're going to look at a particular case which would probably come back to that. You have this situation of microcephaly where you have very, very small brains. And um, there's a lot of interest in understanding that because uh, expansion of the brain is very much a hallmark of human evolution. And so microcephaly raises something of a of a question about our evolutionary origins. Uh, people with that condition um, actually show remarkable levels of cognitive capacity. And so we're now going to start working with a mouse which is a model for this. And, and so it will explore what is the genetics regulating brain size and how that will touch on this, this, this exponential distance rule and also... Uh, on the, the, whole effa- the whole relationship between brain size and, and the explanation of distance rule. So mm-hmm. these, these are questions which we uh, you will which address we in we the future. We will address in mouse,
0: yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony, you have any more? Okay, so um, Henry, now looking, looking at this, your, your tour through, let's say, the anatomy of the brain that's going on for quite a while, um, and which also you have made amazing progress, uh, if we want to follow, follow in that trajectory... What's Henry's law that we should uh, adhere to? Um, I think
2: there's a number of cases without saying any names where people... Uh, you, do you remember the decay of the Brain? Mm-hmm. Right. Very well. So, so the decay of the Brain was spurred by a, a, a book. Um, I won't say the name of the book, <laughs> which said, <laughs> well, w- we, we've got people endlessly producing data and you go to the SFN meeting and it's so depressing because you've got miles and miles of posters of people showing endless data. What we now need is somebody to come along and give us a model of this uh, much in the way that Watson, Crick, uh, Watson and Crick were able to do with the double helix mm-hmm. and, and we'll have a kind of Eureka moment and we'll suddenly understand everything and we will have understood the brain. Basically we would have done it, gone there, would be a finished story we can pass on to something else mm. i find this absolutely ludicrous because um it's based on an idea and there's a there's a, a present a european project to understand the brain and it has this idea built into it that we've got a lot of data and we can go back and accumulate over 150 years of, of journal of comparative neurology and and skim through and, and and take out all this data, and pile it up together, and it will add up to some total explanation. And I think this is dangerous. I think it, it underestimates under the challenge to understand intelligence, biological intelligence. I think it underestimates the challenge of relating that to neurological principles. It, it, it forgets the fact that any experimental result is done in a certain intellectual framework and the interpretation of those results is not extendable. You can't extract these this information willy-nilly and, and apply it across the board. So I think that either government's are going to decide that understanding how brains work is worthwhile, and they will provide money to do basic research, which means not endless science papers and nature papers and what have you, but actually pay people to how many synapses do you have on your pyramidal cell, what is the... You know the connectivity of your average uh, whatever, and pay people to do that kind of work mm-hmm. and, and so I think that there's a, a need for empirical data. Uh, I think that the power of simulation is fantastic and and has to go along hand in hand, but if you don't actually have the investigations, if everything 's got to be a breakthrough now and then you know immediately if you 're only going to have high profile kind of projects, then you 're going to find that you 're actually playing around with inadequate data. And I think that this small world thing, it's not that there isn't a small world complex network. There is. What I want The point I want to make is it doesn't exist at the inter-aerial level. And there's been over, I don't know, how many dozens of publications claiming that that is the case and they've been using inappropriate data. Somebody's got custard on their face. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, um, the willingness to challenge the big questions, I think there needs to be much more interaction between people doing um, the experimental work and the people doing the simulation and I think these have got to be hand in hand and um, this is exactly what we've been trying to do with with Zoltan Torokai and, and now with Chao Jing Wang and, and, and others and and I think it, it's tremendously exciting because you can see your anatomy in a, in a much larger framework in a much bigger context and I think this will ultimately lead to, to real breakthroughs mm-hmm. I think um, sort of uh, Collapsing things and and and, and overselling and, and saying, well, we're going to have a decade with the brain and and uh, and uh, okay, we need big science. That's 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 for certain. But we also need reason science and we need we need um, empirical data.
0: Mm-hmm. And now, four years from now, Tony's going to visit you in Lyon. Yes, have some pâté with you.
2: No, no, duet. Okay, even mm-hmm. better.
0: Mm-hmm. But he's also going to confront you with a prediction you're going to make today. So what's What's the one specific prediction you would share with us today that Tony's going to check out four years from now? Mm. Well, um, I
2: think that we're going to find that there's a a very large range of solutions that biology has brought to the brain. Um, The dream that you can have one brain and extrapolate from that and understand the brain principle goes right against all our understanding of zoology and how it works. So I think that when um Tony comes to Lyon we have a, a pot of wine, white wine and an Andriette. Uh, Andriette you have to have very, very white wine, very, very dry white wine, and in very large quantities. Is that we'll um, we will know something about um different sizes of brains and, and how folding I- in interacts with these things. And I think that the idea that you can use the mouse brain as a model brain uh, for all brains will be seen to be completely felicitous. I, I hope between now and then somebody else would have done the local circuitry because this is where the machine really is. This is where the machine lies across different brain regions. Uh, at the moment, we have no idea about the local circuitry of Area 46. Mm-hmm. We know the local circuitry of V1 in the cat, uh, and we're extrapolating that across all species, all brains, and what have you. So I think that... Um, I think that we'll have a much more um, deeper understanding of the variability Mm -hmm. of of brains and and the solutions they bring.
0: Great. Henry Kennedy, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank
1: you very
0: much. I hope it was not too boring for you.
1: The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometrics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.